Father, thank you again for blessing us today. And um, you're so worthy, God, of all of our, our praise and our attention and our affections. Uh, we praise you, God, for uh, giving us uh, this time of worship. And especially as we come to your word, we're thankful, God, that uh, you are always good, which means your word is always good. It's good for us. And it shows your love, your steadfast love, which will never end, and your faithfulness uh, to your people and your faithfulness to call everyone to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and in a right relationship with you. Uh, so I pray, Lord, that this time, uh, as we get back to our Genesis series, will be a, a true blessing to everyone here and those who are listening online, and that Christ would be exalted through it all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, let's turn to Genesis chapter 2. And if you remember last time, which was a couple Sundays ago now, we completed uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Uh, we did the first few verses of chapter 2, looking at day 7 of creation. And uh, you recall that God completed his work of days 1 through 6, and he ceased his work, right? He didn't rest and take a nap, but he just he stopped. And then he blessed and sanctified that special day, um, which we studied a few weeks ago. And now we're going into chapter 2, verse 4. And this is where many modern theologians and commentators and pastors and preachers have pointed to this section in chapter 2, starting in verse 4, um, point to it, and they say that it is proof that we should not take chapter 1 in a literal way. And they claim that the order of events in chapter 1 contradict or are different from the order of events in chapter 2. And this could seem to be the case at first glance on a surface reading, but it does not, it is not the case upon closer examination. But these modern Commentators and pastors, just um, even within evangelical Christianity, um, they seem to discount any other explanation uh, of this seeming contradiction of chapter 1 and chapter 2. And they conclude that we must take either chapter 1 or chapter 2 metaphorically rather than chronologically. Okay, the opening chapters of Genesis, the opening of the Bible, one, chapter 1 and 2, to them must be read as poetry or prose rather than narrative history. And so to them, the plain meaning of day, as I've sort of harped on uh, over this past several weeks, uh, the plain meaning of day, yom in the Hebrew, in chapter 1, to them, must actually mean long ages of time, millions of years, resulting in an old earth view of creation in which God uses the process of evolution to make the world and everything in it over billions of years of time. Okay, rather than yom, day, meaning a literal 24-hour day, and the view, our view, that the earth is thousands of years old rather than billions, but Anyway, all that being said, we come to our text here in chapter 2, verse 4, and um, the passage goes through uh, to the end of the chapter in verse 25. Today we're doing part one of what I'm calling the creation rewind. 
A Creation Rewind. That's a good title because it reminds you of what's happening here in Genesis chapter 2. It's not a separate, different, contradicting account. It's actually a flashback. And it's a flashback to um, primarily day six of creation. So as we continue our series here, we are going to do part one of this Creation Rewind today. And it's verses 4 through 17 of Genesis 2. Next week we'll finish it, part 2, 18 through 25. And um, I just want us to understand before I read the text uh, that this is a common Hebrew literary device of bringing something in a more general way. And then after that general description is done to give a, a more specific detailed account of what was said before. And so chapter one is the general description of creation. There's some details there and it's chronological and it's historical. But it's, it's broad. It gives us what God did in days one through seven. It centers on God and his creation of the universe. Uh, chapter two now focuses on something specific, okay, the creation of mankind in the earth. In chapter one, heaven is at center stage. And God is performing these awesome acts that we studied okay, to bring the entire cosmos, entire universe into existence. In chapter 2, the garden in Eden, okay, with man and woman in its midst, is the main setting and emphasis. Okay, this is the rewind. This is the, the focused details um, of what was already described in chapter 1. Okay, so verse 4 starts off with, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. And you notice even just as I read that, earth and heaven, it's the, the words are, 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 um, are turned around. Okay, first he says heavens and the earth, which we know by now means the, the entire universe. But at the end there he says the earth and heaven. So it's just a subtle way to, to emphasize that the, the scene is shifting a little bit. Okay? Earth is the, the details here. And so uh, this is the account of, um, the generations of, that's the Hebrew, tolidot. It's an important phrase used throughout the book of Genesis. Eleven times it's used, and it marks the beginning of a, a new section, a new narrative. And uh, I won't bother to give you all of them, but chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 9, these are the records of the generation of Noah. Chapter 10, verse 1, now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah. And chapter 11, verse 10, generations of Shem, and on and on. Okay? Just uh, introducing new sections and new people. So that phrase serves as the organizing principle of the book of Genesis. It's always a heading that introduces the subject matter that's to come next. One commentator says a good paraphrase might be, this is what became of the heavens and the earth. Okay, because what's coming up next is not a different account of creation, but it's a tracing of events from creation through the fall and even ensuing judgment. Okay, this section goes actually all the way into chapter 4, verse 26, after the fall and the, the curses that God uh, places upon humanity and upon Satan. So, 2, verse 4 gives us this heading. It introduces the theme of this next section we're about to get into, the particulars about the creation that God made in chapter 1. Chapter 2 is about to tell us what became of the creation, some specifics of God's creation of man and woman. Okay, So, that's where we are. And I'm going to read uh, the text here, and I'm going to stop at verse 17, chapter 2, verse 4 through 17, and 
If you're able to, once again, please stand. If you're not, understood. But I'm going to read God's word, and this is our passage for today. In this Creation Rewind, part one. Chapter 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Verse 5. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and from there divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The delium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Please be seated. So this is God's story of beginnings uh, continuing uh, in our series here. And uh, you do have some notes, uh, the outline, sermon theme in your bulletin there. The big idea, the theme of today And next week is that God has prepared human beings with all the spiritual and physical resources needed in order to glorify him and enjoy him. And that is glorify him and enjoy life with him and one another. And that is actually forever. And so keep that in mind as um, as we go through the text Uh, today. I'll try to continue to bring that up. Um, The first point that I want to bring out from uh, the first few verses is that mankind was made with the capacity to serve and worship God. Mankind was made with the capacity to serve and worship God. This is the reason why we were made to serve him, to know him in a right relationship of worship. And this is. This is the eternity that God has set in the heart of man. We have been made with the capacity to glorify and enjoy God. And so notice there in verse 4, which I already introduced, um, verse 4 says, The Lord God made earth and heaven. And we know that Moses is the author of the Pentateuch, which Genesis is part of the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And he uses the name, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, 
here for the first time in Genesis. Chapter 1, I think I pointed this out before, but he used God exclusively. Elohim, the almighty creator. Now we have the introduction of that compound divine name, Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh, meaning I am who I am. This is God's covenant-keeping memorial name, which he gave in Exodus chapter 3 to Moses. This name dominates the rest of the chapter 11 times, and uh, even 23 times in the rest of Genesis. So what's the reason for this change in name all of a sudden in chapter 2, verse 4? Well, it's to communicate. In chapter 1, we're dealing with the making of the entire universe, and God is presented to us as Elohim, the Creator, which is stressing his power. But now in chapter 2, Moses uses the name Yahweh along with Elohim, which adds that covenant-keeping, promise-keeping, um, just that, that aspect of who God is. He's both powerful and personal. And in fact, he's all-powerful, omnipotent, right? And he's also intimately personal. So verse 5 and 6 gives us the setting of what's going on here. It says, Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. This passage is describing the conditions of the earth before God created man. As I mentioned before already, um, chapter 1 is not contradicting chapter 2. Right? Because chapter 1 told us that in day 3, God created what? Land and the vegetation. Right? And plants and trees were, were, were made. Then, then day 6, man was created. Right? But uh, it's important to note, okay, when we look at verse 5 here, these shrubs of the field and plants of the field are referring to particular kinds of vegetation. Okay, that first term, shrub, uh, some translations say sprig, the Hebrew is siach. It most likely refers to wild, uncultivated plants. Okay, Genesis 21:15 is used in Job 30. Um, and it seems that the second term, plant, okay, esev is the Hebrew, it refers to cultivated grains, okay, the type that requires agriculture, cultivating. So a fair paraphrase or translation could be this. Before any sprig, before any shrub, and before any cultivated grain existed. It's a way of saying, back before anything of this kind was growing. Alright, so we're getting that from what follows in this very verse. Okay, context is key, right? Context, context, context. And what does it say? It says, For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. See, there was no uncultivated growth of these types of shrubs because there was not yet any rain. And there were no grains yet because there was no man to cultivate the soil. So hopefully this is clarifying. Okay? Verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 11 tells us on day 3, God created vegetation in general. And now, chapter 2, verse 5, God is not causing farmable vegetation to grow until after he created man. Okay, so it's the general to the specific. All right? So, um, just a quick, by the way, does this mean that there was no rain before the flood? Because I've heard just kind of people mentioning that just um, here and there in, in the past uh, couple of weeks. Not necessarily. 
It just means that there was no rain yet before day six when God created man. It's possible that it rained at some point in the days after creation week. It's really hard to um, figure out exactly what the pre-flood environment was like uh, and, and say that dogmatically. All right. So all we can really see from this passage is that no rain had fallen up to that time prior to the creation of man. Remember, again, Genesis 2 is primarily a detailed recap of day six of creation week. And our passage is describing the environment before Adam was created. And this kind of leads us to the point. And with the earth's environment and conditions as such, next is further detail on how God created man on day six. And mankind, once again, was made with the capacity to serve and worship God. We want to remember that. Verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And just by the way, just the way the earth was being watered, just the end of the previous verse, was some mist, some flow from the ground. And um, there's just all those theories about what the canopy was and everything, but it was a different environment for sure. Um, But that's the way that um, things were uh, at that time. So verse 7 again, this is the climax of Yahweh Elohim's creative work, the creation of man. We are the crown of his creation. And after he creates us, man and woman, um, it says, he says it was very good. So this one verse, chapter 2, verse 7, tells us a few incredibly foundationally significant facts about man's creation or God's creation of man, how different we are from the rest of creation. And we went over some of this um, at the end of chapter 1, right? Verses 26 and 28. Man is made in God's image according to his likeness. And we talked about what that meant. Chapter 2, verse 7 gives some further detail, saying that God formed man literally from the dust of the earth, And that God breathed breath into the nostrils of man. This is Adam, the very first man. This clearly distinguishes man from all of God's other creatures. We're not just another animal. So let's look a little further into this verse. We're going to take a little time here. Because it details uh, some things, some foundational significant things. And teaches us, number one, God alone created man. And if I feel it just if it feels like I'm saying that over and over and over through this series, that's good, because we need to know that um, Psalm 100 again. It is not we who made us, but but God. Right. We are his people, the, the, the sheep of his pasture. And so God created man and man did not evolve by blind, meaningless forces. It was not random mutations or accidental physics or chance chemical reactions that formed man did not happen by itself over billions and billions and billions of years. Cells and atoms and molecules and DNA and protons and neutrons and electrons and all those things did not just come together somehow and all of that formed man. No, Yahweh Elohim formed man. It says it clearly in this verse. Okay, Yatsar, that's the Hebrew word. It means to fashion, to shape, to mold That word, that verb is used six times in Jeremiah 18, verses 2 through 6, that wonderful passage where it's it's translated potter. And so here in Genesis 2, 7, we can picture God's work of creating man like the work of a master potter 
who has the power and intelligence to form what he wants to form. Of course, the difference is that God as creator of all things, he brought all those substances, DNA and cells and molecules and protons and neutrons and electrons and all those things. He's the one who brought them into existence himself. And then he used those things to create man. He made the pot and he made the clay, right? We as potters need to use something that's already there. But God made the clay and then he made the pot. And it says he shaped it. He formed it to his liking. He took great care and attention. We all remember Psalm 139, right? We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And it's not saying how how beautiful we are, even though I think babies are are beautiful. I think babies in the womb are beautiful, outside of the womb are beautiful. But um, God is talking about fearfully and wonderfully made as to the handiwork and skill and care and precision and genius and creativity and loveliness of God, the creator. And he did this incredible, wonderful act, making man from the dust of the earth. Adam, man, was made from Adam, ah, which is Hebrew for dust, ground. There's a little play on words there, which shows their, their close connection, how close we are to the dust, to the ground. We're made of it. There's the story of the excited little boy who came to his mother and said, Mom, is it true that we are made from the dust? And after that, we die and go back to the dust? And she said, yes, it is. Hmm, he said, I looked under my bed this morning, and I think there's someone either coming or going. <laughs> God and God alone shaped and formed Adam from Adam Ah. And the process of evolution is the furthest thing from the meaning of this word and this text. God did not create man by any means of evolution. It didn't take thousands and millions and billions of years. We didn't come from one single cell and it just randomly mutated into more developed beings and ultimately to hominids and ape-like creatures. And then over another millions and millions of years into who we are today as human beings. He formed and fashioned the first man with his own hands his creative power and wisdom. The Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. What a beautiful image of God's love and grace in creating us. The second foundationally significant thing I want us to take from this verse is that God breathed life into man. God breathed into his nostrils, it says, the breath of life. A man is not, we are not merely physical creatures, okay? uh, slaves of our appetites, just living by instinct and our passions. We're more than just dust, even though we're made of the dust, because God breathed his breath of life into man. Okay? This is related to being made in God's image. Our verse says that with his divine breath, man became a living being. And, you know, verse 20 and 21 of chapter 1 says the same for the animal, living creatures. And we kind of um, took that apart there a few Sundays ago. But only man is a living being made in the image of God according to God's likeness. The word for breath in Hebrew is ruach. Okay, it imitates the very sound of breath. It's the same word for spirit. 
God created man by putting his breath, his spirit within him. James Montgomery Boyce, he says, quote, the implication readily seen by any Hebrew reader is that man was specially created by God's breathing some of his own breath into man, end quote. This is the breath of life. And maybe we can picture in our mind's eye that God formed Adam's physical body from the, the soil of the earth, a lifeless human body lying on the ground there. But then God comes down to, to breathe into the first man's nostrils. Okay, how intimate a picture that is. And there's another story of a, a guy who, who brought home uh, a dog from the animal shelter, rescued, rescued the dog. And um, he, he shared the story saying, before we brought him home, we were given a pamphlet on how to care for him. It included everything from dietary requirements to separation anxiety. But the section that took me by surprise was the one that told me how, if my new dog should choke, I could save his life with mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. And he says, as much as I really love our dog, I don't know if I'm up to giving him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. But here it says, the Lord God breathed into the man's nostrils the breath of life. Just think about that. Whatever the process was, who we are of the earth, we're creaturely. 1 Corinthians 15, 4, 7 says the first Adam was earthy, right? Um, we were animated with divine breath from God and of God. We're created in his image. We're stamped according to his likeness, like with his trademark. The almighty God who spoke the very stars and galaxies into being, stooped to breathe life into his human child. Amazing. This is God, the source of all life, directly placing life within the man. It's not just physical air. It's the animating life force that comes only from God's spirit. And our life, even right now, our very next breath, we take in and out as we sit here, is contingent on the continuing, sustaining breath of God. We're completely dependent on him. Last thing is that man became a living being, a living being. And that word can also be translated soul as it is in the, the KJV, the King James Version. Um, literally, that's, that's what it is, the word in Hebrew, nefesh. It means an animated, breathing, conscious, and living being. Man became a living soul when God breathed life into him. And as being made in God's image, you'll remember, right, the three R's. I mean, this is kind of very broad, but we're relational, we're made to be rational, and we're responsible before God. This is unique among all other living creatures, living beings in the entire universe, entire planet. Both animals and humans are called just that, as I said before, But humankind became that in a different and more significant way. Again, we've given the breath of God, making us living souls. We're made in his image, and we have those aspects of God's attributes in us. So to sum that up, the point, man was made with the capacity to serve and worship God. And this is all that this uh, this is telling us. 
We're not merely physical creatures. The life of God lives on and on. And we as living souls, this is the spiritual, immaterial part of man that's made to live for eternity. We were formed and made to be in a right relationship with God forever. And he gave us everything we needed to live in this way for this purpose, for eternal joy with God, serving him, worshiping him in spirit and in truth, John 4, 24. And so before we get to the next point, briefly, verse 8, once again, says, The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Okay, so specifics, right? Specifics of day one through six, um, given here, he planted this particular garden amongst his creation. It was toward the east, wherever that is, okay, the location of this garden um, in Eden. We don't know exactly where it is today. Um, but this is where God placed the man, Adam, the very first man who he created. And then verse 15, if you just jump ahead for a second there, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Okay, this is going to lead us to our next point. He placed him in this garden to cultivate it and keep it. And so what's our second point of our outline today? Is that mankind was given the responsibility to obey God in order to flourish in life. Mankind was given not only the capacity to serve and worship God, but the responsibility to obey him. And this is for our soul's flourishing and delight and satisfaction. The purpose we were created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So verse 9 says, Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So in this specific garden area, the Lord God, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh Elohim provided an LCE. And this is my, just my abbreviation for what's being described here. LCE stands for lavish care environment. Um, I just, that's just the, the phrase that comes to my mind, and I've kind of labeled it for this, this, this garden, this specific area that God made. Every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, and the rest of the passage gives us even more description. We'll get to it. But it, um, we know this as the Garden of Eden, but it seems also maybe like an orchard, right? All these beautiful trees growing all around, all over the place, left and right. So maybe it's a it's a garden orchard, if you will. Okay, just an amazing place to picture all these trees that are growing there. They're not just healthy and delicious and nutritious, um, which is how I describe my wife's cooking, delicious and nutritious. But it also looked good, okay, pleasing to the sight. Um, I don't know exactly which fruits were there. It doesn't tell us. But you just think of the array of fruits that are available to us and um, just apples and oranges and peaches and pears and lemons and limes and um, I believe uh, avocados even, which I turned around on a few years ago to really disgusting and hating to. Now, where can I get some good avocados so I can just gobble them up? Hey, just uh, can just imagine the stunning array of colors, whatever these fruit trees were, um, different colors and shapes and textures and tastes, delightful palette of variety. Uh, just expressing just the, the creativity and, and genius, once again, of God, 
pleasing to the sight, it says, okay, nice to look at, uh, good in appearance, as well as to smell and touch and taste. Okay, so this is part of the description of a, a most pleasurable place, okay, a paradise, a paradise that God graciously gives to Adam to cultivate it and keep it. Okay, it just reminds us that work is not a curse to man, at least in the beginning. Okay, it's actually a blessing. But the curse on work becoming a toil and then thorns and thistles making us sweat for our sustenance was after the fall of man, after disobedience to this command we're going to look at in a moment. But for the moment, the environment could not have been more excellent. Okay? The place could not have been more pleasurable, more delightful. And in the midst of this garden were a couple of very special trees. It says the tree of life. And we're going to say more about this in Genesis chapter 3 when we get to it in a few Sundays. Um, but the tree of life is mentioned in Genesis and Revelation. And there's a few mentions in Proverbs, but more specific, most specific in Genesis and Revelation. And this is a life-giving tree that God created to enhance and perpetually sustain the physical life of humanity. Okay, and we're going to see a little more specifically what that uh, entails when we get to the end of uh, chapter 3, after the fall, after the, the judgments, um, and Adam and Eve are, are banished from the garden. But that is the tree of life. And, of course, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is the forbidden one that Adam and Eve were not to eat from, verse 17. Um, before we go into more of that, uh, I just want to look at these next verses for a moment. Further description is given of this area in Eden okay, where the garden orchard was located. Verses 10 to 14, which I, I read before, 10 through 14. Um, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. From there, it divided and became four rivers. Right? So there was a river that flowed out of Eden, which was this bigger area than just the garden. But this river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, into the garden. And from the garden, it divided and it became four rivers. Right? It reminded me of, the, of, of Pittsburgh. Hey, our brother, Pastor Bill's old neck of the woods, right? And my old favorite football team, the Pittsburgh Steelers, used to play where? Three Rivers Stadium. Yeah, I think that's long gone, right? It's been a number of years. But uh, anyway, there's two rivers there that, that conjoined. It became uh, the Ohio River, I think. And the football stadium was located right at that point. So it was called Three Rivers Stadium. But this is Eden, okay, way before Pittsburgh, way before America, 10,000 or so years before, and uh, much more beautiful, obviously, than Pittsburgh. No offense. Uh, but this is Eden, and it sounds like such a lush, fertile, rich, fruitful area. Okay, just flowing, as you read that description in verses 10 through 14, filled with gold and mineral resources of precious stones. Um, Bible reference, uh, just the, the, the site there has a helpful quote. It says, this passage helps us to understand where the region of Eden was without knowing the specific location of the garden. Verses 10 through 14 describe those four smaller rivers which came from a larger river. These rivers correspond to rivers and lands that we know in the modern world. And the previous verse described the first of those four rivers. The, the river Pishon was said to flow around the land of Havilah, quote, where there is gold, according to our verse, right? Some scholars understand Havilah to be Arabia, 
an area known in the ancient world as a great source of gold. And this verse describes the quality of that gold as good, possibly pure. And also found in that region were onyx stone, which would later be important to Israel in decorating the temple and the tabernacle. And this land is also said to have been rich in delium, which is a, a translucent substance. And um, just this particular mention might be might mean that it's just particularly precious and, and different. So in any case, the region is being described as one rich in specific resources. And as such, it is clearly meant to be understood as a literal location, end quote. And I think that's so helpful because you, you just hear that that um, people understand the Garden of Eden, uh, Eden as not a real place and not a literal, real place. It's just some mythology or some legend, or some metaphorical place. Um, but the scripture, when, when you read it, you examine it a little bit, clearly it's talking about some place in history at the very beginning of creation. So verse 15, moving on, says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to cultivate it and keep it, which reiterates what was stated in verse 8. Okay? Um, verse 8 of chapter 2. There he placed the man whom he had formed. It also brings to mind the creation mandate again in verse 26 and verse 28. Man was given that blessing and command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And to what else? Subdue it. Subdue the planet. Subdue the earth. And rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here in verse 15 of chapter 2, it again, it expands and gives specifics to that. God puts Adam in the garden to cultivate it and keep it, okay, to take care of it. Cultivate means to serve, means to work, um, means to labor, to, to steward, means to oversee and tend. Interestingly, the same word is uh, in Exodus chapter 3 and Exodus chapter 7 is translated worship. So there's a, just a nuance of work and labor and worship uh, going together there. To keep, it means to, to watch, to preserve, to guard, to watch carefully, to watch over carefully. This is the work that God gave Adam in this perfect environment, this pleasurable paradise. Adam was to steward the creation that God had made, and with it, he was given a command. Right. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man. Tzavah is the Hebrew verb there. And it's the first use of this verb in Genesis in the entire Bible. We're only on chapter two, but (laughs) chapter one is not found. Um, It's a verbal communication from a superior to a subordinate. The one in authority gives the orders, gives the directives. God commands the man here. He sets down the rule. And this is right and good. Why? Okay, because God, obviously, is the authority. Okay, along with uh, creator, along with author, is the word authority. Right? And so we don't always see things that way. We don't like to be told what to do. And especially in today's sin-fallen world, we kind of... Just want to do things the way we want to do them. Live life the way we want to. And not heed God's authority and God's word. 
But the same principle here is that, the simple principle here, is that to obey God is actually life and blessing. To obey God is actually life and blessing. And we have it so backwards when, oh, we've got to obey God. Oh, look, all this, all this stuff in the Bible, we've got to do that. As if it's, it's um, as was mentioned yesterday at the men's group, is God a cosmic killjoy? And he just doesn't want us to have fun and, and happiness in life. Nothing could be further from the truth. To obey him is actually to flourish in life and enjoy it in the way that God has created us. So we're given that responsibility to obey him okay, in order to experience that joy, that enjoyment of life, to truly have abundance of life that God has given to us. Hey, by the way, verse 16, it says, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Hey, people always miss that part, right? God commanded the man saying, don't eat that one. Right? No, he starts off by saying, any tree of the garden you may eat freely. This is an invitation. It's a, it's a welcoming. It's a generous, magnanimous provision from God to Adam. And he says, eat, eat. Hey, not just eat, but eat, eat abundantly, freely, lavishly. Any of the trees here in this paradise to your heart's content. And so God graciously gives. He's so generous. And he also commands obedience here. Not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Obedience, that's the basic response that God expects from his children. He never asks anything of us that is unreasonable or unfair. He gives us commands as God, and then he holds us to them, as he should. I was at Joseph's um, place where he he takes cello lessons. This is uh, music, Mozart Music Academy uh, over there in in Encino. And uh, just waiting for, for Joe's lesson to be done and observing a, a, a parent with like, it must have been four or five-year-old boy in the midst of the administrators there and some of the other parents who are, who are waiting and kids. And this four or five-year-old boy would not stop whining, almost crying, until his dad gave him his cell phone. And he, he, he literally, and the dad would tell him, oh, stop, you can't be doing that. And he would go on and on, uh, on the verge of tears and kind of making a little scene. So I don't know what dad did. He did eventually take him out um, and said, hey, we got to let's go outside. Uh, hopefully he was holding his kid to uh, accountability there. And that's not an acceptable um, behavior. Um, but God holds us accountable. And it was true then at the very, very, very beginning. And it's true now. Hey, Warren Wiersbe says that, quote, obedience to God's word would keep Adam and Eve in the sphere of God's fellowship and right relationship and approval. All of God's commands are good commands and brings good things to those who obey them. End quote. Okay. Um, Adam had responsibility to obey God. And we understand as believers, God's commands are no longer burdensome. Right? First John 5, verse 3. It doesn't mean they're easy. Don't get me wrong. It's not easy to obey all the time perfectly. And God expects inside and out, right? Um, and yet, and yet, 
Christ has lifted the weight because he's paid for all of our transgressions. And every time we've broken the law and every time we've sinned inside and out, Jesus has taken care of it all on the cross. And that's the great, amazing power and gift and grace of God. That we can be forgiven. We can live in freedom. Simply place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. All this stuff that you're pursuing today it will, will dim in light of the glory of God and the gospel and of Jesus Christ. And you have to believe that. Everything good comes from obeying God's command. The first command, if you're an unbeliever today, is to repent and turn from your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ, who died for you, who laid down his life so that you would not perish and receive rightful judgment, which is eternal hell, eternal separation from God and eternal conscious torment forever. God God would have you not suffer that, but he would have you, as he says in Ezekiel, to turn, turn from your, your unbelief, turn from your unrighteousness, turn from your wicked ways, and turn to God, turn to Jesus Christ. That's the invitation, that's the call, that's the good news. You can have hope because Jesus paid it all. So he says in verse 17, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Listen, God gave the truth to Adam. He gives us the truth. He gives us the gospel truth, which I just very briefly shared with you all. There's real consequences of what would happen to Adam if he disobeyed God's word. And when he says surely die, it doesn't mean just physical death. It means spiritual, eternal death, but eventually physical death first. You will surely, surely die. And this is what the devil questioned Eve with a little bit later in Genesis chapter 3, right? God really say? So God created humans with the capacity to obey him and then tested them with commands. We're going to see that Adam failed the test um, in corruption, Genesis chapter 3. And Romans 5:12 again says, Therefore, just as through one man, this is Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Okay? Some people say, oh, that's not fair. It's not fair. How could God hold them to that? Oh, they only messed up once. Well, we don't understand the holiness of God. We don't understand the goodness of God. We don't understand the righteousness of God. We don't understand the mercies and compassion of God. And so... God gives us the truth just as he gave it to Adam. And it reminds me of Romans chapter 9. Who are you, O man, to question the potter being clay? And you made me like this. That's, that's, um, that's futile and it leads not to life, but it leads to death. So we are going to uh, continue next week uh, in chapter 2. I'll kind of leave it there for now. Um, there's a lot more that could be said. But we have chapter two coming, or part two coming, and we're finishing chapter two next week, and there's a third point to this outline, and I'll save it for next time. But God has prepared human beings with all the spiritual and physical resources needed in order to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. This is the reason why we exist. So life is not about us, dear people, it's all about God, and that is good news. And that's good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we 
have delved into this next section of Genesis chapter 2, that we would never set up our, our own will and our own ways against your holy will. God, let us, let us not seek to satisfy ourselves, but always find our satisfaction in you and in your glory. Thank you that as Christians, we do not boast in ourselves, but in Christ alone and in him crucified. What good news, what hope that is for everyone, that eternal blessing and bliss and glory can be found as we simply turn from our sins and turn to Jesus alone. Thank you, God, so much that even from the beginning you give us the, the hope and the good news um, that the rest of the Bible unfolds for us. But thank you, God, so much for your precious word to us today. In Jesus' name, amen.